Welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Megan. And I'm your co-host, Carly. And we are here with Carmen. Thank you for being here, Carmen. Hello. So just to start us off, do you think you could broadly just tell us what your research is about? Absolutely. Um, so my research is concerned with the sociocultural stream of kinesiology, um, and I'm doing my master's in sociocultural kin specifically. And my research is regarding the understanding and exploration of athlete safeguarding policies and maltreatment in parasport. So we're essentially looking at how, whether or not there are adequate safeguarding policies for athletes in parasport and then kind of seeing if they're aware of them and kind of how they feel about them. So um, you talk about maltreatment and this was something that was really interesting to me. I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that a bit more. Yeah, so maltreatment in general is like a concept um, is I guess a, a way that you would hear about it more often or the word that's most often used is harm or abuse. Um, so it would essentially be anything like physical harm, psychological harm, even bullying, um, sexual assault of any kind. Um, so just any, essentially any type of harmful behavior for my purposes, that's perpetuated towards an athlete who experiences disability specifically, because that's kind of, um, what I'm doing my research in. So that's, it's a very broad, um, definition in this sense, but our hope is as I kind of continue to have discussions with athletes and get to know their experiences and hear from them directly, we can make our own definition specific to the context or specifically in the context of parasport because it looks different in different environments. That's really interesting. So I'm just curious, you said you'll be discussing with the athletes. So I'm assuming a lot of your research is like interview based, like you're interviewing um, athletes. Are you focusing on athletes within a specific region? So currently we're looking at Canadian athletes. So kind of the inclusion criteria is current or retired English-speaking parasport athletes that are over the age of 18. Um, and the reason why we're looking at Canada specifically is because it's, I'm, I'm doing a master's. So like I really, it's too big to kind of look at it past Canada, especially because as far as we know, there hasn't been a lot of research or really any research that's specific to parasport in from like a sociocultural perspective and harm. Um, so currently the focus is Canada. I'm potentially exploring the option of looking into a PhD in the future where maybe I can expand on this topic and look at it from a different perspective, but I'm not 100% sure how that'll go quite yet. So so I find it in interesting that you're, you're working on a definition of harm on, and building that definition um, of it. Um, there has there been any research done on on definitions thus far or things you're building off of to inform that right so there are definitions that exist um from a practitioner perspective that I've come across obviously I don't know like every single definition that exists out there but based on the research that I've done there are kind of broad definitions that exist specifically from medical professional perspectives or like from the organization itself or from a sports organization itself. Um, the reason why I want to kind of develop my own definition or kind of build off of the ones that already exist is because a lot of the times, especially when you're looking at disability, people kind of tend, and this is the case with a lot of interventions in health 
uh, in like this area of health specifically, researchers or whoever is introducing or implementing the intervention tend to go in and say, well, I know what you need and I'm going to give it to you without actually recognizing what that group feels that they need. So kind of the idea here, and that's, that's something that's always bothered me. Um, so my kind of hope is that we can go and have discussions with athletes who are directly impacted by the safeguarding policies or the lack of safeguarding policies and kind of see what they really think is harm and maltreatment for them, especially with parasport, because it can be so dependent on the disability or on the sport itself. So I think it's really important to have those conversations with the athletes to understand, well, what's what's unsafe for you versus what's unsafe for somebody else. So it's it's hard to come up with like a big, broad definition, but I think that's why just to kind of really understand athlete experiences, I hope to over time develop some resemblance of our own definition. So talking about safeguarding policies, can you maybe go into that a little bit more? Like what's an example of a safeguarding policy? And you said there's a lack of them, like maybe there's not a lot in place, but if you could give us an example of right. something that is in place, that'd be great. Yeah. Um. So kind of if you do a quick search of, if you pick, for example, wheelchair basketball um, and you look into their safeguarding policy in their general code of ethics or code of conduct, more often than not, um, Wheelchair basketball is a little bit different because they actually do have some policies in place, but most organizations that I've been able to find have just a general, um, like a sentence. We will ensure that the dignity of the athlete is respected, that there's no harm, there's no physical, sexual, emotional abuse of any kind. And that's more often than not kind of the extent of it. There's not much going into it, at least that I've found so far. Um, there are some organizations that I've come across and over time, kind of more organizations have started adapting more policies that will have safeguarding um, practices in place. So for example, um, they have something called the rule of two, which is basically that an athlete is never going to be alone with one person of power, essentially. So like person of power might not be the right word, but a coach or a sports administrator or whoever. So the rule of two is essentially that it will be you and one coach and somebody else and it's tiered so the ideal it, it goes like I think that it, it goes in color scheme so it's like red yellow orange all the way to green except I think I said that in the wrong order um but so the green like the top level would be one athlete with two coaches whether or not that's kind of the best way to approach safeguarding is a whole other story but that's or whether or not that's a good policy to have one coach two athletes is depends on who you ask, but that's kind of an example of a policy that does exist currently. So speaking of that, and this rule of two is really interesting. I didn't know that. Um, it seems to me just based on what you've said so far that there is perhaps say a lack of, of in-depth policies in Canada specifically, I don't know about other countries, but in Canada specifically um, regarding safeguarding. So when I, when I think of that, I, I, my next question would be really since there's this lack of policies, what are the risks that these these para-athletes are facing in lieu of, of policies existing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're right. There's really not that many. And the ones that do exist, um, based on the conversations that I've had with athletes so far, a lot of them don't know where they are, what they are, where to find them if they need them. 
Um, so in terms of risks, there's obviously when you're in a, regardless of whether or not you are a person who experiences a disability or are considered what traditionally we may refer to as vulnerable populations, there's always a risk when you're associated in some type of power dynamic type of relationship. Um, but for parasport specifically, there's always, so I, I always use the example of very recently, we there was the case of Dr. Larry Nasser in USA Gymnastics, where he assaulted like some crazy number, like 256 children and women throughout his career. And he had access to those people because of a lack of policies and a lack of enforcement of those policies, right? So there's things like that. Uh, there's even things like in sports specifically, it might be hard to draw the line of, well, this is my coach being upset with me because I did something wrong or I'm not working hard enough versus this is my coach blatantly abusing me or maltreating me in emotionally or whatever it might be. So, and when you look at it from a disability perspective, some may kind of be inclined to say, well, people who experience disabilities might be more susceptible to harm and maltreatment because they might be more dependent um, than other individuals. So for example, if you need a guide for a specific sport or whatever, then you have the person who is guiding you who can also perpetuate some type of harm if you're not in a safe environment. Um, so it's really, the, the risk is always there, but I think the lack of policy and more so the lack of enforcement of those policies is a problem um, because we know that harm does exist in parasport. It's just that nobody talks about it because there's this preconceived notion of, well, you work with people who experience disabilities, so you must be a really good person because you really want to help them. And that's so kind and so wonderful. Like I personally, if I ever tell somebody, oh, I'm doing my master's, this is what I'm doing my research in, I'm looking at disability studies specifically, they're instantly like, wow, that's so fantastic. That's so rewarding. That's so, yes, but I could be a bad person and you have no idea. <laughs> You're just assuming that because I'm working with somebody that you consider is part of a vulnerable population, I'm immediately a good person. Um, I'm kind of going off on a bit of a tangent here, but the risk exists in that regard that we just kind of assume that, oh, maybe it doesn't happen because nobody talks about it, but it very much does. Um, so I could go on and on about that, but <laughs> please do please tangent away, <laughs> <laughs> but that's essentially kind of, you can be at risk regardless of what environment you're in. It's just not really talked about on the parasport side of things. So based off your interview so far, I don't know how far you are into your master's, but, um, can you give us some, if, if you have this information, like what kind of the biggest risks that people in parasports are facing or what's the, the biggest harms that people are experiencing? Yeah. Um, I think based on the conversations that I've had with athletes, it might not be a, like a direct, here's a physical harm or sexual harm or whatever that occurs. But the biggest issue that I've heard is the lack of education. Um, I recently spoke with an athlete who said, I've never even heard of the word safeguarding. Um, I don't even know what say I've never heard of safe sport, which is a move like, so there's really not a lot of education for the athlete themselves. Um, I had an athlete who said, if, because some of my questions are policy-based, so I would ask them, oh, have you ever consulted your safeguarding policy? If so, did you think it was adequate? A lot of the responses I'm getting is, I don't even know where to find it. Nobody has ever told me where to find it. Nobody has ever, I've never received any training on 
here's what happens when you feel unsafe. If you feel unsafe or somebody does something, here's how you report it. Um, so I think without, it's really hard to approach this topic from the harm, like explicitly tell me the harms you've experienced perspective, because obviously that's a very personal thing for the athlete um, and whoever who may have experienced that harm. But from a policy perspective, what we're hearing or what I'm hearing a lot of is they don't know what the policies are. They wouldn't know where to find them because nobody's ever told them. So, um, so, okay. So I hope this is a question that makes sense in the context of your research, but I, I'm wondering if the lack of education around these policies or lack of any attention to telling these athletes where they can find these resources, is that, do you think that would be intentional or is it just nobody talks about it? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. I think I was speaking with an athlete recently who said it really well. The policies that they know of that exist almost seem to exist for the purpose of protecting the sports organization. So if something happens, so the coaches might have some form of training, that's if something happens, here's what you're going to do. Um, the rule of two exists on surface level and prop like in actuality, yes, that's probably where the, um, the thought of it came from to protect the athlete. But also if there's two coaches and one athlete and an athlete says something, you now have a second coach to say, oh no, I was there. And that's not actually what happened. Mm -hmm. Right. So I don't know if it's intentional. I think it's more, I, especially in parasport specifically, I feel like parasport is often overlooked uh, for traditional or for mainstream sport or compared to mainstream sport. Sorry. Um, I don't know if it's intentional that there's not a lot. Um, I feel like I would kind of have to have more conversations with athletes and their specific experiences with their sports organization. But I think that it's really upsetting that there are no para sport or not none, but there are barely any para sport specific policies that exist. So if you look at para swimming, for example, their safeguarding policies are the same policies as Swimming Canada. There's nothing specific to para sport. Why? I do not know, but I mean, I kind of have, I can guess, um, but I don't know. Um, and it's really, which is an issue because like I said before, the disability, not even the disability, but the way that swimmers experience their sport would be very different in mainstream sport versus in parasport. So it, why there isn't an explicit, here's the parasport policy versus here is the mainstream swimming Canada policy. I don't know. I don't know if it's intentional. I would like to think not. Um, but I think it's definitely a gap that needs to be addressed. But yeah, kind of going back to what I was saying earlier, I thought it was really interesting that the athletes said that the policies sh that they know of are very much, well, maybe this exists to protect the organization and not actually me, because the coaches have been told, here's what you do if somebody accuses you of something, but the athletes haven't been told what they should do if they have experienced some type of harm. I don't know if that really answers your question, but um, it's kind of, I guess, related <laughs> I, if I can ask a follow-up question to that. Yeah. So I, I know we were talking about policy and we've been talking about how there's a there's a lack and particularly for the para-athletes and how it's really 
it's concerning that there's not something just for them Mm -hmm. um, in your example of para swimming to go back to that. And I know when we, when we asked about the harms that para athletes faced, you had mentioned it was, it was a bit difficult to list all of the harms, right. Um, And that it's in some ways personalized to each athlete. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if that's maybe an obstacle to policy development. I think that's really interesting, especially in para sport, as I was saying, because um, my thesis advisor and I kind of talk about this a lot too. Sport specific policy, specifically for para sport, um, or relevant to the individual's disability, um, can kind of make it more complicated. Like an individual who is physically impaired versus like whatever other type of impairment they have experience the sport differently than somebody else. Right. So I think an obstacle, yes, to making things more accessible. Um, it definitely makes it more challenging. It's I, but I think one of the ways to go about it is to have a conversation with those athletes who are directly being impacted by harm or directly interacting with those safeguarding policies. Well, what do you think is a gap that needs to be addressed and how can we help you address it would probably be the best way to go about it. Um, so Carmen, we've talked about risks. We've talked about problems with the policy thus far and the, a lot of the gaps, I guess, that Canada needs to address. So since you're doing the research, um, one of the questions, I guess my supervisors always asked me and yours has probably asked you is um, what, what what could be done to fix it? And ideally, what policies could be put in place um, to address these gaps and and help these athletes? Yeah, um, I think kind of what I was saying before is allowing the athletes who directly are impacted, specifically in Parasport, by the harm and de- directly interact with the policies to have a voice in developing Um, adequate safeguarding policies is definitely the best way in my opinion to address it Um, because if I I as a researcher can can kind of gather all this data and get an understanding of issues of safeguarding within parasport but I don't have the direct experience of participating in parasport or I don't have direct um I don't have direct experience participating within whatever sporting context that they do. So who am I or some CEO of some organization or some administrator of some organization to create a policy without actually having any understanding of how it might turn out in practice. Um, So I think the, in my opinion, the best way to address it would be to, to give the athletes an opportunity to have a say and to share their experiences so that the policies that hopefully eventually will be develops more robust policy specifically are adequate if that makes sense would it entail like a sit down with an athlete saying like how can we help you what what um maybe this is a hard question what broad I guess um parameters would they take um to begin to approach this I think it's tricky because specifically with elite sporting environments a lot of the reasons why athletes don't feel comfortable sharing their experiences is because their funding, their space on the team or whatever can be taken away. 
because now you are potentially threatening the reputation of the organization, right? So they might not feel comfortable sharing their experiences because in fear of retaliation, essentially. So I think it's tricky in that regard because it's, and that's kind of why for my research it's taken a little bit of time to do participant recruitment because I understand it's a very sensitive topic and people don't necessarily want to be put in a situation where their livelihood or their passion for their sport or their ability to participate is compromised because they said something. And now whether or not the organization does it explicitly is another story, but um, there's a documentary called Athlete A that's on Netflix um, where one of the athletes who said in the Larry Nasser case, um, who kind of spoke up, was suddenly cut from the USA gymnastics team and couldn't go to the Olympics, even though she was doing incredibly well um, and should have been on the team because she spoke up. And suddenly it's all about money, right? So like she's speaking up, suddenly sponsorships can be pulled. So I think for that reason, it's really hard to get athletes um, to feel comfortable, not by any fault of their own, um, to come up and speak about this issue. But I think a way to look at it a way to address it is to allow athletes to be on the board of directors or to be kind of on the decision-making side of, for example, the International Paralympic Committee or the Canadian Paralympic Committee or whoever, because at least then they're in the room. Yeah. And whether or not we're addressing it from a, hey, let's talk about harm tell me your deepest, darkest secrets. Like that's not what we're after. But I think if, if they have the opportunity to at least be in the room, whether or not it's like to begin with before harm conversations come into play, just to be in the room and to have a say, I think naturally, maybe this is me being like idealistic, but I think maybe naturally, or I hope maybe naturally over time, the voices of those athletes will be integrated into the conversations more if they at least have a seat at the table to begin with or learn from, Hey, here's, we're hearing about hockey Canada and we're hearing about Larry Nasser and we're hearing about all these things that are coming up. Learn from that, speak to your athletes, ask them, Hey, what do you think are issues that exist in parasport and how can we help you address them without explicitly saying with in a way that doesn't make them feel like they're position or their kind of um, space in parasport is being compromised. I think the main part of it is to, well, let's look at what's happening like Cocky Canada or whatever, and actually learn from it instead of saying, oh, now we have a, I, I think of it as like a Band-Aid solution. So if Hockey Canada suddenly has this thing, I could totally, I don't know if this happened, but I could totally see a sports organization saying here are coaches or here are athletes do this safe sport workshop. And it's like a check mark on there. Like, yep, we did it. We're done now. But actually learn and actually police it and do something about it, I think is um, definitely key there. I yeah, know those are all really great points. And it's clear you're super passionate about your research. So I'm just kind of curious, like what got you into studying this topic? Yeah, um, it's kind of um, so I went to Queens for my undergrad which I guess is not very well received at times from Western University. I was just going to say, um, boo. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I feel like Queens has a 
issue with Western way more than Western has an issue with Queens. I don't know why I never understood it. Um, but I did my undergrad at Queens, um, and I was a health studies major. Um, so a lot of the things that we looked at were health promotion based, um, or public health based. And one of the, my kind of light bulb moment that made me realize that, Hey, I would really like to explore disability studies type of research was I took a course, um, I forget what it was called, like intro to disability or something like that, um, where we learned a lot about the way that people who experience disabilities are treated in Canada and how their health is compromised because of attitudinal barriers, sorry, or physical barriers or whatever it might be. Um, so that kind of is what was my little light bulb moment um, that made me realize, oh, this is something I'm really interested in and would like to go into. Um, on the flip side of it, the harm thing came in because I also, um, during my undergrad, we did a lot of learning, I guess, um, on harm reduction, which obviously generally harm reduction is looked at from like a substance use perspective. But I went to my thesis advisor and kind of told him like, hey, I'm really interested in harm and I'm really interested in disability studies, which is what I came to Western to do to begin with. And together we kind of came up with this topic because and I remember when he kind of proposed, well, hey, there's really not been too, too much research about disability and harm. Um, one of the first things that I thought of was the case of Larry Nasser, which I've talked about like 37 times now. But that was something that always um, really enraged me that why was this man allowed to and given access to 256 women and had been abusing them since I was born? Um so that kind of that connection plus the harm connection plus the disability connection resulted in this topic coming to light. Um, and then, yeah, I worked with David Howe, who's my thesis advisor, to finalize the topic. We applied for OGS, which we got, which was really wonderful. Um, and kind of here we are working through the data collection and participant recruitment process currently. OK, well, we're just about almost out of time. Um, thank you so much for coming on, Carmen. Um, I know we I know we talked about it before the interview started, but if anyone wants to learn more about your research, is there a website they can go to, an email they can reach you at, or any social media? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so our lab has a website. It's Health and Physical Cultures for Social Justice is what our lab is called. Um, and then they can also email me, um, which I will share with you as well. Um, and I'm always... I love talking about this topic. I love talking about my research. Um, so I'm always open to hear from people. If there's uh, people in the Western community who, I know that there are a few um, athletes at Western who have competed in the Paralympics as well. If there's anybody who wants to kind of participate in the research that I'm always open to hear from them. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the best way, I guess. Call for participants then. Yeah, <laughs> always. <laughs> So this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Megan, and my co-host was Carly. We've been speaking with Carmen, and this episode was produced by Jordan. Um, if you want, if you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at GradCastRadio. 
To listen to us, we're on Radio Western at 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a good night.